We are looking at the book of Romans. Uh, The text that we will be looking at uh, this morning is chapter 12, verses 9 through uh, 21. Uh, A good friend of mine has uh, become a very popular writer, a well-known writer. He's become a great theologian. Uh, Perhaps some of you know him. His name is Michael Scott Horton, and I got to know Michael about 20 years ago when he was a young man. Matter of fact, the first book he ever wrote, he was 14 years old when he wrote it. But one of the books that uh, he has written recently, well, in the last 15 years, is a book called Made in America. And it's a book uh, which critiques uh, the American culture's impact on the church. And what he says uh, in the book is uh, that one of the impacts uh, of American culture on the church is consumerism. That in America we buy and sell goods. Uh, Everything's about marketing. Everything is about uh, uh, proficiency. And so what he says uh, that has happened in the American church is that rather than... uh, Looking to the sovereign God, we look to the sovereign audience and we market the church uh, to people as consumers. And he said that the end result is that anything that is unpleasant, anything that demands us, uh, that demands anything of us, is to be suppressed. And churches become places where the promise of abundant life fixed marriages and the purpose-driven life are cultivated rather than a life of discipleship. The call of believers to be sought and light, to lay our lives down for our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors who live in darkness. But the American gospel is it's not the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that calls us to a life of self-denial, a life of taking up our cross and following Christ, a life that's submitted to Him. Now here's what I want us to understand about that, to be practical about it, so it's just not kind of airy language. Paul is telling us that that takes place in the body of Christ. To put it another way, if you're not actively involved with the body of Christ then you might be a pietistic person versus a pious person. And the word piety simply means duty, responsibility. And pietism is when it's you and God apart from the body of Christ. True piety is learned and takes place within the context of our relationships with each other. And I will tell you what the vision for Redeemer has always been is that we're not just an institution. Uh, Presbyterians are notorious for learning lots of things but never sharing our lives. That's not Christianity. So as we come to our text, Paul is going to talk about the mark of a real believer in the context of the body of Christ And if you don't know Christ, it's all going to be platitudes. If you profess to know Christ, but you're not actively involved in participating in the means of grace in the body of Christ, then it's going to be airy. 
But for those who are seeking to honor and serve Jesus Christ, it's a very real text and challenges us of our need for the Holy Spirit to do this. So let's read our text together. Notice what he says. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, And I will repay, says the Lord, to the contrary, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, there is no way that this text can be drilled down into the depths of our heart apart from your spirit. Lord, we confess to you when we read these words that they are overwhelming and yet simple, simple, love our enemies, simple command, love one another. We should be genuine that we should serve one another fervently, that we are to heap burning coals upon the heads of those who are unbelievers as we love them who hate us. And yet, Lord, it's impossible. It's impossible in the flesh. The law of God cannot make us do this, but only the love of Christ and those who have experienced that love. So, Lord, I pray for any who are here tonight, to this morning that do not know Christ. We confess to them that one of the reasons they probably do not is because we market the church rather than being the church. So, Lord, teach us to love one another so that they might experience the love of Christ and that we would participate in each other's lives. And we ask these things in your name. And for your sake, amen. Uh, Football season's back. 
And uh, with football season comes the recruiting season. In fact, I saw where Georgia signed a four-star player this past week. I confess that I keep up with things like that. A lot of y'all don't care about the talent level of a player, but I want to use it to illustrate something. The way that scouts determine a player's talent level is through a star system. And for sake of time, let me just say this, that the five-star player is what every school will go after. Every school in the country is going after a five-star player. There might be 20 five-star players uh, that are given that designation. But one of the questions uh, that is often asked when we, when we get a five-star player or a school gets a five-star player is this question, are they the real deal? I mean, they did it in high school, uh, but can they perform on the field? Can they live up to their billing? Are they contenders or are they pretenders? And you know, there's no way to know that until they play. And a lot are a bust because all the talent that they have, it never pans out on the field. Maybe it's a lack of discipline. Maybe it's uh, they have no real desire to be part of the team that they chose to be part of. But those players which perform, those players which discipline themselves, they're the players which want to be part of the team, uh, then they prove themselves on the field and they prove that they're the real deal. Now, I know that's a simple illustration, but let me tell you this. The world is longing for Christians to be the real deal. Not pretenders. There are those who are probably here this morning who maybe the reason they came is because they see some weightiness in your life. Maybe they've met some Christians who are actually genuine Paul has told us that apart from grace that comes through Jesus Christ and what we call the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, being made alive by the Holy Spirit, there were only pretenders. And we discover that in the context of the body of Christ. And, And at best, we are moralist if we don't know Christ. We're good people, good Christian people who would never have affairs, who would never cheat on their taxes, who tithe, but there's none of this that we've read in our text, in their hearts. And at worst, you're a Christian by name. You're, you're a Christian. I, go to, I believe in Jesus. I, I, I believe that he died on the cross and he was raised uh, from the dead. But the scriptures are very clear that a man or a woman who has come to understand by the Spirit the first 11 chapters of Romans, that they've, they've heard that, that, that righteousness of God comes from Christ, that that's the first four chapters, that it's through Christ alone, resting in what He's accomplished. And that so clicks that it leads to the implications that Paul speaks of in chapters 5 through 11 And the implications of that is you're no longer an enemy of God. You know that by God's Spirit. You are united to Christ. You have access to God. You are one with Him and you've received the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so Paul comes to Romans chapter 12 and he begins to show the application of what that looks like in somebody's life. And the first thing he says is, therefore, it is reasonable, based on all these things that have been said, that you should give yourself as a living sacrifice. Makes sense? For you've been purchased by the very blood of God. That's what the word redemption means. You're no longer your own. You've been purchased. You're no longer under the bondage of sin and Satan and the darkness of this world and the pettiness that we see in our lives. But now you are a slave of Christ. And so he tells us in verse 2, so don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, grace always leads to real change. I just got, you got to understand this. Grace doesn't lead to indifference. Grace doesn't lead to, well, I guess I can do what I want to do. But at the same time, grace is not just between me and God and my walk with God. It never's that way. I've been reading through Ezekiel um, the last week or two. And I came to that great passage in Ezekiel 37. In the context of that passage are a, the covenant people of God, the most religious people in the world who are dead. They're dead. They've rebelled. They go, to, they go do temple. They do all that stuff like many of us go to church. You basically hate it and you don't really like it. And, you, and you know, as the scripture says, God's, uh, you know, his words are, are, are on our lips, but they're far from our hearts. The praise of him. But but it's the Valley of Vision. You know that story, right? Where God says, Ezekiel, go to the Valley of Dry Bones. And so he goes and he has this vision of all these skeletons that are laying out there. And God says, speak to those skeletons and tell them to rise. And so in the name of the Lord, he does. And all of a sudden, all the the muscle tissues and and, uh, the, the skin comes on those bones and they come alive. And this is what Ezekiel says. This is what the Lord says to Ezekiel. Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. And they say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Maybe you feel that way. You're a religious person, but you're dry bones and there's no hope for you. You know that. You've given up on the Christian thing. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them and I will bring you back to the land of Israel and then you will be my people and you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring, up, bring you up from them and I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. And then you'll know that I, the Lord, has spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. He's pointing to the day when Christ would come and the Holy Spirit would come, and He would take us who are hopeless people, being religious or irreligious, and He would make us alive in Christ. It's it's what is called being born again, born of the Spirit of God. But Paul is saying, if that is the case and we're united to Christ, then we're united to each other, friends. That's really what it means to be a Christian. If you're united to Christ, if you're united to Him, you're united to His body. Now what we looked at last week 
in verses uh, 4 through 8, or 3 through 8, is, okay, well, you're made alive, you've given your body as a living sacrifice. Then he says, therefore, you're to be one in the body of Christ and you're to use your gifts. And so before I even talk about the characteristics of a Christian, I've got to ask you, especially if you're members of Redeemer, are you using your gifts? Are you? And if you're not using your gifts in the body of Christ, I would say our text says you've got serious problems spiritually. But he speaks of the gifts in two ways. One, they're the teaching gifts, the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of teaching, uh, the apostolic gifts which have passed. But they're also gifts of service, the gift of giving, the gift of hospitality, the diaconal, the mercy ministries. And the reason the church suffers and the kingdom of God suffers right here in Athens is because many of us are building our own kingdoms. Now, what Paul wants to deal with this morning is the mark of a Christian. You're in the body. You use your gifts. But I want to look at the marks. And, and guys, if there's anything I want to do when we look at these marks is to drive us to Jesus Christ. I read these marks. I can tell you right up front that I, I, don't, I don't, you know, <laughs> I'm lacking. So the goal here is not to beat us up. The goal is to move us toward Christ as we should be seeing these marks in our life. Now, <clears throat> two things. He talks about the marks of a Christian within the church. And I think this is verses 9 through 15 or 13. And then he talks about the marks of a Christian in the context of a lost world. How you live your life before nine Christians. And so the first thing to see is this. The marks of a genuine Christian in the body of Christ. And we're going to see this in verses 9 through 13. I'm not going to read it right now. I'll just walk it through. Uh, some uh, commentators uh, call this a perinesis. And perinesis is kind of a, a, a literature in the Old Testament where the author begins to move in and out of subjects. And so sometimes it's hard to connect them. And Paul has systematically been speaking uh, clearly. But here it seems like he's just talking about right off the top of his head what are the implications of a person who's been united to Christ and who's actively involved in the body of Christ and what does it take to be effective in the body of Christ. Now, I'm going to walk through. I'm not going to say all of them. But I just want to highlight these and, uh, and then we'll close. Okay? First off, notice, notice what he says. Very first one. Love must be genuine. Let me say that again. The mark of a Christian is love. And the love that he speaks of here is the Greek word that many of you have heard many times if you've grown up in the church. It is agape love, okay? And I want to tell you, this is what makes Christianity, true Christianity, unique from all the religions of the world and all of humanism and all the things that are out there is because it flows out of love. Not by works. 
It's not because you're doing these things in order to get on the right side of God or because, okay, I'm supposed to love this person or do the right thing. No, what he is saying is if you have been united to Christ, okay, the, the essence of God in all of his attributes is love. You see, the Bible teaches this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're a Christian, it is because God chose you before the world began. And he has set his love upon you, even when we weren't asking for it. John tells us in in 1 John that God is love. That's how he describes it. God is love. And then he describes those who are Christians who are professed to be Christians, who are not actually genuine, but pretenders. He says, he who says he is of God, but hates his brother, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. This is why he says that love must be sincere. Uh, The word there for sincere is, I mean... It's the opposite of being the hypocrite. And the hypocrite and the idea of a hypocrite at the New Testament time was the person who played the part. You just play the part. Oh, I'm going to play this part of this character over here. But I'm not that character. And so he's saying that real love, a love that comes from God through being united by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ and that love ushering from heaven into our very hearts must be sincere. It cannot be with hypocrisy. You're not playing a part. You are the part. Another term that's used there for sincerity is uh, people used to uh, uh, buy pots. And just like we do today, there's some uh, vases. I don't know if it's vase or vase, but, you know, pot. Some are more expensive than others. And you want to get what you pay for. But what was a big trick back then was uh, people would wax the pots that had cracks in them. They weren't the good ones. They put the wax around them. And uh, you couldn't see the wax. And so they would sell it at a higher price than what it was worth. But when the heat came, the wax melted and the pot was of no value. And what he's saying is you can't be a waxed Christian. And the real question in our lives, when we talk about love, whether it's loving your husband or loving your wife or loving your children, loving your parents, loving the people that you work for, the question is, what are we like when the heat is on? I mean, you're, we're full. Everything's great. But then the realities of a person hurting you or wounding you, the heat of trials and tribulations come and the wax begins to melt. And all that we were full of is emptied, and we become an empty pot. But you see, a Christian is someone who the love of Christ is poured into him. That's why we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we did it as a responsive reading. I mean, the whole con- this is a parallel passage. 1 Corinthians, Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is a parallel passage. There are lots of parallel passages because basically what Paul is doing is restating the Sermon on the Mount on all the applications of the gospel. But notice what he says again about love. 
You know, if I, if I speak in tongues, you know, I'm, let's say I'm charismatic. And I have all these experiences with God. But I don't have love. I'm just a noisy gong. I'm a clanging whatever. And then he begins to zero in on the Reformed people. And he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, but I, and have faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. And then he kind of moves on to people who are in the mercy ministry. People who are like, I'm not into all that teaching and theology and, you know, having experience with God. I believe it's real practical. We need to serve people. You ever met people like that? Maybe you're like that. But notice what he says. If I give everything I have to the poor and give my body to be burned, but I have not love, I profit nothing. You know why? You know what it's saying here? Is you have to be born again. You have to be filled with the love of God through Jesus Christ. So love must be genuine. We could stop there. But he also says that love must be discerning. We're to hate what is evil. Right next to love he puts hate. And the question is, how can he talk, tell us to hate when he just exhorted us to love? And that is because love is not a blind sentiment, friend. Love is not this feeling that we have, first off. And I'll tell you, a Christian is a person who hates sin in their own life. They love God and they, they love people, but they continue to see in their life their own inconsistencies. And you hate it in yourself... And you know where else you loathe it? You loathe it when you see it out there. You hate what's evil. You see it, it bothers you. You're not indifferent to it. You know, um, Georgia lost, we know, last night. And, and I'm already, I, I was up early uh, this morning, and uh, I was kind of went to a blog page just to see what was said about Coach Rick. Not a lot of love. Hatred. Hatred. Because a man loses a football game. And I, you know, I, I've got my thoughts about coaching. I used to coach, never won hardly any games when I coached, but so my opinion doesn't matter a whole lot. But I know this it grieves me to see a man hated because he didn't win a football game. But you see, we need to ask ourselves do we hate what is evil? Do we loathe it? And then he says this. There must be brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Some of us don't even know each other to be able to be affectionate toward one another. But he says this. We are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. He uses a different word here. He's saying there should, it's the word that we get family from. Kin. You know, you're kin folk. Especially ones you really like. <laughs> but yeah, I've got brothers and I love my brothers. They're all different, but they're my brothers. And what he is saying is this. Is that we are family of God. That we are to have affection Brother, how are you doing? We're not just to go to church on Sunday morning and leave. 
and our lives are never intersecting with each other. I, I still, I don't, I, I mean, I just, I don't want to guilt anybody into going to men's prayer meeting. I'm sure you're probably cooking breakfast for the kids, maybe. A lot of you have good excuses, but at the same time, I can tell you the guys that come on Thursday morning, they, I mean, Wednesday morning, they begin to develop an affection for each other. Sharing our lives together, what we struggle with. Some of you are not in any relationships, and I'm not real sure about that. But he says that love honors one another. You put somebody above yourself. And you know what? That sounds very... But I'll tell you what. You had a good example of it this morning. And, uh, you know, when Will asked my wife to stand up, she kind of stood up. But she sat right back down. And uh, one of the things I've always admired about my wife, uh, and I don't want to embarrass you, Mary Beth, but, and I didn't ask you if I could say this, but... She's, uh, she doesn't want the recognition. And uh, she's just thankful that men and women are being ministered to. To prefer others above yourselves. You know, the opposite of honoring other people is your own pride and you want to build yourself up. And it's about me and what I want the music and the choir to be and what I want, uh, what, what, what I want from the preaching and what I want for my family. And if the, No, we're to, prefer, we're to honor and prefer each other. Paul talks about this in Philippians when he says this. Therefore, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same mind, being one in spirit, of one mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility Value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. And you go, platitude, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. But you know what he does at that point? He says, oh, in fact, let me give you an illustration. And he points them to Christ. And he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God did, did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but made himself nothing. For who? Good people? For sinners. And you see, again, what Paul is trying to say, if you're made, giving your body as a living sacrifice, using the means of grace, being with Christians, reading the scriptures, praying, having fellowship with other people, then that, the, the love of Christ is just increasingly being poured into you in such a way that you cannot help but, but bear these virtues. Wow. There's a lot here, isn't there? I mean, I got more on the list. I ain't gotten to the part the your enemies. But I got another few minutes. I want to talk some more about what this looks like. He says that love is zealous in surface. Now listen to this. Love is zealous. Now the Greek word there is to be boiling over. Now there's a wrong kind of zealousness. I saw some boiling over again on the blog page. People that are zealous for Georgia. Wrong object. And they're angry. And they're going to spend all their energies writing on blog pages and setting up Fire Coach Rick web pages. So there's a wrong kind of zeal. The Bible talks about that. But you know what? This says zeal in service. 
bubbling over. And so what puts that zeal in the right spot is when the love of Christ is making you hot and you're being poured into the lives of other people. Why? Because you can't help it. You want them to know that. I believe that's what he's saying. I believe this is life in the Spirit. I believe this is walking in the Spirit. I believe this is what it means to be a Christian. I really do. And if you have no zeal for God and zeal for other people, why? again, I just go, well, well, you know, if you know all these things but you have not love, you profit nothing. Love is from God. It's not something like, well, I think I'll work harder at that now, won't I? The whole point is to point us to Christ because you can't do it, Right? Would y'all agree with that? You're going, man, oh man, I can't. You know what the opposite of hot is? Cold, but you know it's worse than cold and hot? Lukewarm. And, and, and you know, the writer of, of the book of Revelations, the, the, John says, I'd rather you hot or cold than lukewarm, for if you're lukewarm, I'll do what? Spill you out of my mouth. Not lukewarm me and Jesus and I'm having a quiet time. I'm saying lukewarm toward the body of Christ. Love rejoices in hope, patient tribulation, and constant prayer. Here's the list. Love is, yeah, rejoices in hope. Look, we all need hope, don't we? And we rejoice in hope. You know why? Because we see this world for what it is. And some of you are struggling with depression. Some of you are just struggling in a tough marriage. But you know what? I want you to rejoice in hope. I had a good friend of ours we buried yesterday. My next door neighbor was killed tragically in a car wreck uh, on Thursday. She was like a mom to me. Pulled right out in front of a car, killed her. And as I think about her and I think about the world and how we grieve and how the world grieves, the difference is this, that Paul says uh, we grieve, as Christians we grieve, but not as the world grieves who have no hope. We rejoice in hope and therefore we're patient in tribulation and we're constant in prayer. He says love is marked by hospitality and generosity. Love is, that's what it says. So he goes on, he says, love is marked by hospitality and generosity. I mean, I, would you be the person who said, hey, we got somebody came in out of town, I need to put them up. Would you be the person we could call where you go, you, are you the last person we're going to call? There's certain people in here get loaded on all the time. You know why? I'll tell you why they get loaded on. It's because they're hospitable. And there are others, they're like, oh, not calling you. We are to, matter of fact, the word here is to practice hospitality. We're actually supposed to pursue it. Call up the church and say, hey, if anybody needs a place to stay, I'll, I'll put them up. This is Christianity. just saying what it, it ushers out. You think God's hospitable? And then he says, love is generous. Love is generous. Man, hey, let me help you out. How much money do you need? You can put it on your credit card. You don't have any money. Well, I don't necessarily recommend that. If you don't have any money, you can put them up for the night. Maybe you should. Are you a generous person? These are marks of a person who's united to Christ and active in the body of Christ. Well, what does it look like outside the body? 
What does a, a Christian look like outside the body? You know what he says is going to happen if you're really a Christian? And this is the rest of these verses. All of them are about bless those who persecute you. Vengeance is mine. Why is a Christian, a real Christian, why do they really get persecuted? Now I'm going to tell you what. If you're, if you're never persecuted and if nobody ever bothers you, it's because you're bland. We're, there, there's not the sense of being united to Christ. And let me explain it this way. And you've heard me say this before, but the world loves good people. But they crucified Christ, didn't they? It was because he was more than good, he was different. And his love for God and love for people exposed the legalist. Exposed the person who's always wanting their own. And they couldn't deal with it, and they said crucify. Right? Now, I'll tell you what it really means to be a Christian. You're united to Christ, and you're not a religious person, and you're not, a, and you're not an irreligious person. I'm going to tell you, you're a different person. You know why? Because these characteristics. And you begin to expose the southern religious Christian for who they really are. And then there's persecution. You don't get accepted in groups, and you don't get to be in this group and that group. You know why? Because you're talking about Christ all the time. Or because you're... I'm saying, talking about, look, you're just, let's put it this way. You're living in his presence. How about that? Now, what are you to do? Bless people. Y'all got any enemies? Might be your wife. Might be your husband. And what really, really concerns me is how many Christian marriages sitting right here and here in this room is that the one person is Steve Tulitsky sitting in the back, our counselor. If you want to see a counselor, go see Steve. You're back there somewhere. I saw you. But he said this, if only one of the parties would actually start doing this, then at least one life would be changed. You're waiting on your husband to change. And you curse him rather than blessing him. And you want your wife to change. And they're never going to change. That's who they are to a certain That's their personality. You know, I, I, can't, I don't know how well how you would have imitated me, but apparently it's not hard because people do it all the time behind my back. But I cannot not do that. And so if my wife's bothered by the fact that I run my... Do I, do, I do that sometimes, right? I run my fingers. Or, and see, there's things that irritate her. Nothing irritates you, me about you. But <laughs> you're great. You're awesome. But you're supposed to bless them. There's a lot of enemies in this room. And you come take communion every week. And you're an enemy to your spouse. And week after week after week, you come up here and take communion. Now, the only way I think you ought to come today is if you're going, you know what? You're right. And I need Jesus to help me be that kind of person. Let me ask you, y'all need Jesus to help y'all bless your enemies? Y'all need Jesus Christ? Well, he's available for you. Because the whole point of the sermon is not try harder. It is go, hey, look, Jesus Christ loves us right where we are. Doesn't he? And so we should love one another. I heard an amen from a child over there. Amen. Thank you, brother. (laughs) Well, we need to take communion. Friends, don't toy with God. Submit to him, the lover of your soul. 
and his love will wear you out. You can't help but love everybody because he just keeps on loving you. It just vomits on everybody else. Yeah, I love you. You're my enemy, but I love you. I'm going to tell you, because you're united to Christ and you're seeing your need for him. But if you're a proud, arrogant person who thinks you're fine and you're good, I'm telling you, God have mercy on your soul. But if you're a broken person, man, I can't, I can't, love, I can't even love myself much less anybody else. Then you come to Jesus and rest in him. Let's pray together. Father, it's time for us to come and commune with you. We thank you for the opportunity to praise you in song and to confess our sins, to hear the gospel of Jesus, to give our tithes and offerings. And now, Lord, you're going to minister to us, and we thank you for the table. Father, I pray for every person in this room that you would move in their lives and make dead bones come alive. And I ask in your name. Amen.